Revelation chapter 10 tonight. Revelation 10, yeah. Yeah, now, now listen, I, I, I like some, I like certain preachers that do that sing song, so, so don't tempt me, cause I may actually go there. Though this passage, I don't think would be the best one for that. Um, Revelation chapter 10, we are coming, we're in the middle of the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet has blown. Um, God has exercised part of the judgment, but like the six, uh, like the seven, um, seals, when the sixth seal was broken, after the sixth seal was broken, there was an interlude before the seventh seal was broken. And the same thing happens right here in the sixth trumpet. When the sixth trumpet is blown, um, the specific judgment that's unleashed is unleashed, and then there's an interlude before the next one. And so, in a sense, this is part of the sixth trumpet judgment, okay? But in a sense, it's different. And you'll see why I say that. We see here a picture of God. There is... There is debate among scholars whether the angel we will see in this chapter is the angel of the Lord, that divine-ish character that, that, that seems to appear throughout the Old Testament, that one second talks as though he's an angel of God and the next second talks as though he is God, that it's hard to kind of distinguish between the two. Um, it's, there's a debate going on whether this is God or not. I'm going to make the argument for you today that if it is God, great, and if it's not God, he must be really close to God <laughs> because of the way he's described and the things that he does. He gives us a picture of God, in a sense, kind of shows us our own roles uh, in light of who God is. So, Revelation chapter 10, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, seven, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Father, I pray as we see this big angel with this little scroll, 
that you would teach us about yourself and about ourselves. Father, help these words of your settle deep in our hearts. May we be good soil to receive it, to nurture it, to be fruitful with it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have in this passage this angel. This angel is described in words that, that seem to be divine. The way he is described, it's almost as if this is God and not just a mere being. Um, because of the way that the angel is described, some scholars think this is the angel of the Lord. This is God in appearance. But at the same time, it seems not to be him. Look in verse, in fact, I tell you, this angel, if he's not God, I'm still kind of undecided. I don't really know. If he's not God, he's doing a good picture of picturing God. He's doing a good, he's, he's giving us a good example to look at this angel and to say, well, that must be kind of a little bit of what God is like. Listen to the way he's described. First, it describes in kind of a general sense the dominion of God. In verse 1, we see it through his appearance. Then I saw another mighty angel, another angel, a mighty one, as it would read in the Greek, coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud. Does that sound familiar? The one coming on the clouds, the Son of Man from Daniel 7, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. We've already seen in Ezekiel and in earlier in Revelation where God's, God's, we picture the throne of God and it's like rainbow around him. The light, it seems to be scattering off of him and off of the clouds that he's wrapped up in so that it shines this luminescence all around him like a rainbow. This angel has that kind of effect. And his face was like the sun. The glory of God shining forth. Just like it had from Moses' face when he came down off the mountain. Having spent such time with God that his face was radiant and people could look at him and they said, you got to cover that up. We can't bear to even look at you. The glory of God shining so brightly off of this angel and his legs like the pillars of fire that by night led the Israelites through the wilderness. His legs were like pillars of fire. How would you like to see this vision? The appearance of this angel demonstrating the dominion of God, demonstrating his glory, demonstrating his holiness, his otherliness. God is not. We are made in his image, but we're not exact copies. We don't quite reflect the full glory of God. The heavens, in a sense, reflect His glory, but not quite fully. And I suspect this angel, as brilliant in appearance as he is, if he's not God, he's close, but not quite there. Even he can't reflect the fullness of God's glory. And so I see the dominion of God in just the appearance of the angel, His glory, His wonder, you can't help but look at something like this and be amazed and be astonished. Picture it in your mind. Take a second. Let it, let it captivate your, your cortex. Let it sink in to that visual center of your brain and just picture the glory of this angel. And just know this is just the best that John can describe it. Imagine how much better it would have been in person. 
We see the appearance of the angel. We also see the arrangement of the angel in verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand. Compared to such a big angel, any scroll would look like a little scroll. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. In the arrangement of this angel, we see the dominion of God, the God over the sea and the land, the God who is in control over the waves and the fish and the one who's in control over the grass blades and the creatures who walk upon it, the one who is in charge over all things. Verse 3, we see the activity pointing us to his dominion as well. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. Maybe like a lion of a tribe of Judah, maybe? By the way, when a lion roars, you think other animals take notice? I think creatures in heaven and on earth take notice of this roar. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Seven, wait, seven thunders. Where have I heard seven thunders before? David, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He's bragging. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And all in His temple cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. These seven thunders must be none other than the seven spirits of God crying out, calling out, declaring the voice of the Lord to all of creation. I don't know about you, but I have the feeling that as we're going through this book, that John is led on this journey such that when the judgment seems to get to its At its particular sharpest points, there are moments of worship interspersed so that we don't forget who God is. Because it's easy to look at the judgment in the sixth trumpet. The judgments that are being put in Revelation 9 and forget that He's the God worthy of praise. Forget that He is the God whose voice is thundering over all creation. Who has every right to break the cedars of Lebanon like they're old toothpicks. Now, I don't know, I don't know if you know this, but the cedars of Lebanon, they're pretty big, but His voice shatters them. Pop. It's nothing for Him. We have the dominion of God. And this angel, if he is God, he's showing us what we can handle. But if he's not God, 
he's getting as close as he can be to showing us who God is. We not only have the dominion of God, verse 4 gives us the knowledge of God. In particular, God, my dad used to have a saying, just because I taught you everything you know, doesn't mean I taught you everything I know. Okay? So he'd teach me to do something, teach me to play checkers, and then we'd challenge him, and I'd say, I'm going to beat you. And he'd say, just because I taught you everything you know, doesn't mean I taught you everything I know. And usually he would beat me for a while, till I learned more, and I got better, and then sometimes I'd beat him, and he'd beat me. God, being the Heavenly Father, has taught us everything we know, but he ain't taught us everything he knows. This revelation of Jesus Christ that's going on throughout this book is a revelation that, yes, is showing us a lot of things about the future. It's showing us a lot of things about the end of days. It's showing us a lot of things about how God will make all things right and the consummation of the world and of all creation. He's showing us some of these things, but He's not showing us everything knows. And verse 4 is proof of that. In verse 4, the seven thunders have just sounded. I was about to write, John says, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Don't, don't write it down. This isn't, this is just for you. Don't write it down. Just because he shows us everything that we know doesn't mean he shows us everything that he knows. God has withheld part of this from us. Now we could, boy, we could have fun speculating. What did those seven thunders say? What what did those seven thunders say? What does that little scroll have in that big angel's hand? What's written in that scroll? Maybe it's what's about to happen. Maybe the seventh trumpet is written on that scroll. Maybe the plan, in chapter 11, we're going to meet two witnesses. I don't want to ruin for you, but the two witnesses are faithful witnesses to God. Maybe, maybe their story's written on the scroll. Maybe the scroll lies out what happens next, where we go from here. Maybe it's a little bit different word that's used, but maybe it's the same scroll that the Lamb had just opened up a few chapters earlier. The scroll with the seven seals. Maybe. We don't know. That's all speculation. I'll tell you this though. I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of the God who has this angel. He says, don't write it down. Can I tell you something that grates me, that gets on my nerves, that really grinds my gears? God doesn't tell me everything. It makes me so mad. Does God tell you all everything? No. Do you know why? Sometimes I think he doesn't tell me everything because I'm an idiot. (laughs) And I can't handle it. Sometimes I think he doesn't tell me everything because if I know it, where's my trust? Where's my faith in a God if I know how it's all going to turn out? I mean, yeah, I know Revelation tells me enough to know Jesus wins. And I'm on his side, so, so we're all good. Where's my trust in God if he lays out all the details? Where's the faith that results in obedience to me doing what he tells me to do when I know what the end is going to be? My temptation would be, well, all right, well, Lord, you got this. I mean, just lean back and relax, get my sweet tea, and enjoy the show. Our tendency is that we don't trust when we know. Our tendency is for us to lean on our own understanding, but God says, don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And we think we can't. 
think we can lean on what we know. We think we've got it. We think we're good enough. But in reality, we don't know diddly squat compared to God. And we need to trust Him so He doesn't give us all the details. And sometimes I wish He would, but I'm glad He doesn't. We see God's dominion in this angel. We see God's knowledge at work. We also see His might. Verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land. That's the second time he said that. It's not the last. Raised his right hand to heaven. This is one of the reasons why many people feel like this cannot be God. This cannot be a theophany. That this must be a creature of God because he's raising his hand to swear by God. Maybe. I don't know. I do know this. God is mighty enough to make the promise. He's made the promise. This angel lifts up his hand and swears. Verse 6, And swore by him who lives forever and ever. Notice the description. Not the one who, who lived a long time ago and ain't alive anymore. Not the one who just recently got on the scene. Not the one who's been around for a good long while, but eventually he's going to pass away. He's the one who lives forever and ever. He's the one that dates prior to eternity past and long after eternity future. If you can't understand that, it's okay. I have a hard time too. Just know that as far back as you go, he goes farther. And as far up as you want to go, he'll go past that too. Swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and what is in it, by the way, with just a voice, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. Go back to that dominion for a second. That's all dominion, isn't it? Heaven, well, that's everything. Earth, sea, you can't get away from Him. You you cannot escape a place where God does not have dominion. You can't go somewhere and expect to get away from Him because He's in charge even there. David says, where where could I go to flee from the Lord? I go up to the highest mountains, you're there. I go down to the depths, the valley, you're there. I go down to Sheol and you're even there. Where am I going to get away from you? And he says that partly because he's tried to run away from God. Partly because he's so glad that he can't. Oh, God is mighty enough to make the promise. And he's even mighty enough to perform it. Look at the promise that there would be no more delay. Some versions render this that time would be no more or that there would be no more time. The word usually means time, but this is one of those strange uses where it takes on an uncommon meaning. We're not going to wait anymore, he says. He's mighty not only to make the promise, but mighty enough to perform it. And then as if that wasn't enough... He even goes to the next level and describes God being the one who is mighty enough to perfect his work. Verse 7, But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. God has been foretelling this for a long, long time. And now the time approaches for him to complete that promise. And he's not going to leave any promise unkept. This would be a great place to end. But John doesn't end here. 
And I think it's important for us to take the next step because up until this point, we have been seeing the character of God through this angel. Whether this is God in theophany form or whether this is just a servant of God doing a pretty good job of showing us about his master. But I've said it before and I'll keep saying it. And I don't know, maybe maybe this ought to be like, I, maybe maybe this ought to be the theme of my entire preaching ministry. Who God is and what he has done ought to make a difference in the way you live your life. I have now at this point been saying that for four years. <laughs> One day I stumbled on it during a sermon and I thought, man, that's good. I got to keep preaching that. And sure enough, the more I look in scripture, the more I see it's true. Who God is, the nature and character of God and what he has done, the actions that he has performed ought to make a difference in the way that we live our daily life. It ought not be something we just read out of a book. It ought not be something we just sing in a hymnal on a few couple times a week. It ought not be something that we just every now and then come across, but it doesn't really change us. It ought to affect the way we live and move and and breathe and have our being who God is and what he has done ought to make a difference in the way we live and in this passage we see that because John enters the scene normally the seer is just seeing but in this chapter the seer takes part so let's look at the part of the prophet verse 8 then the voice that I heard from heaven the same voice that said don't write what the seven thunders just said That same voice speaks to him again. Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Third time he said that, he gets his instructions. Go take the scroll from that angel. Now, all right, let me step out of preacher mode into into conversational mode for a second. Show of hands. How many of you would walk up to this angel and say, give me that scroll? (laughs) Yeah, uh uh-huh. I thought that would be a little bit of, I think, I think the, um, I think the Yiddish word, uh, cojones. <laughs> I think that's Yiddish. That's a, that's a whole lot of huxpa or whatever, however they say it. That, that's a, that's a whole, man, that's, that's a whole nother level of bravery or stupidity. I can't figure out which. But God, the voice out of heaven, we know God is talking, says, go take that scroll. That's his instruction. And so, like any good prophet, he follows the voice of the Lord. He goes up. Verse 9, I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Maybe he's being, I don't know. I I, I think he probably kind of asked weekly, could could I please see that? Just for a second. I won't mess it up, I promise. And the angel, he he said to me, the angel saying to him, Take and eat it. Ezekiel was once told to eat a scroll. Back at the end of Ezekiel 2, beginning of 3, he is told to eat a scroll, and it's sweet like honey when he eats it. But this scroll is a little different. Um, This angel says, It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth will be sweet as honey. There's a couple of different ways of kind of relating this. Some say that the message that is on the scroll is both sweet and bitter because of the kind of message it is. Some say that it's the, the sweet will be the reward, so to speak, and the, the bitter will be the persecution that lies ahead for the church. It's going to be difficult 
to see all of this play out. It's going to seem good at first, but it's going to be difficult. Some say it's like the gospel message. Part of the gospel message is that those who do not repent don't go to heaven. They go to hell. And as hard as it is to watch someone not repent, there, there's the bitterness to it, but there's also the sweetness of, of the, the salvation that we have in Christ is sweet. But seeing others reject that is bitter. Maybe that has something to do with this. But he's warned. Eat it, but you got to know. Even though it's going to taste good, it's not going to settle well on your stomach. Verse 10, And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, verse 11, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So what is the role of the prophet in the story? I'm going to argue to you, and I know I know you're not ministers, preachers in the vocational sense, but one thing we talk about in preaching classes, one thing we talk about um, when if you're... If you are a vocational preacher, one of the things that that's often talked about is the idea of incarnating the Word. I don't want to just beat you over the head with the Bible. I want to preach the truth of Scripture, but I also want to demonstrate the truth in the way that I live. And much like Christ incarnates God for us to see. Teaches truth, yes, but He's living truth. He's demonstrating truth. He's showing that truth in practice. Part of the role that I have as preacher, as pastor, is to live the truth. And it's a role that every single one of us have. Because every single one of us following God has a role to play in the production of His kingdom, in the, in the furthering of His kingdom. Every single one of us, whether you are vocational or not, whether you are here a couple of times a week, whether you are on your knees praying so much that you have permanent calluses on your kneecaps. Whatever the situation may be, whether you are someone who has long, long been in the church or someone who has just started, you have a role to play in the propagation of the kingdom of God. And part of that role that every single one of us have to do is to incarnate the Word, to take it into us and live it out so that people will not just hear the truth from us, but will see the truth in us. God is and what He does ought to make a difference in the way we live. And if we're preaching truth, but not living truth, we're not fulfilling our roles. We're not honoring God. What I see in this chapter is a great picture of who God is, and not only what He has done, but what He is going to do. But then I hear that call, that call that I've been hearing for a long time, and I suspect I'll hear for the rest of my life. Those same two words from Jesus that captured Levi. Follow me. What are you going to do with this? Mike, what are you, what are you going to do? Are you, are you going to, are you just going to let it sit on the page or are you going to take it into your heart? Are you just going to study it, know it, talk about it? Or are you going to act it out? Are you going to follow me? The part of the prophet is our part. We have a commission to proclaim the words of God. Now he's a good enough God to proclaim. Reread the first seven verses of this chapter if, if you didn't quite get that message. In fact, Open up your Bible randomly and point and start reading. I'm sure very quickly you'll come across a reason to talk about God. Just about anywhere you look, you're seeing God magnified in this scripture. 
so may it be true in our lives. We have our instructions. Take the word in you. It's tough. Part of the reason it's bitter is because people... Part of the reason it's bitter is because it will bring you scorn. Part of the reason it's bitter is because it's just a hard message sometimes to preach. But God's given us his word. He's given us the commission to go tell. So in light of who he is and what he has done and what he's going to do, may we be faithful as witnesses to him. Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. Help us to put the word into our heads, to know what it says, to meditate on it, dwell on it, and thereby to not only have it in our memory banks, but also have it in the depths of our hearts, to plant it deep into the soil that isn't covered with briars and thorns, that isn't full of rocks, that isn't beaten so hard that nothing can penetrate, but the good, arid soil, the good, nutritious soil. When we put it there, help us put it into practice. Help us live it out. If we say Jesus has saved us, help us look like it. Loving our enemies is something we talked about this morning. That's a great way to do it. But there are many other ways to help us be faithful in those. To apply your word on a consistent basis. And then when it comes time to speak, when it comes time to actually declare the glory of God, when it comes time to proclaim your word, when it comes time to prophesy, when it comes time to use the words of our mouth and not just the meditations of our heart to be pleasing, may we be found faithful in the task that we may see your word Take root in others. Father, you've given us a commission. Help us fulfill it. Thank you for being so glorious. Thank you for being worth worth all the praise, worth all the glory, worth all the talk. Help us demonstrate how worthy you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.